The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now, let's take our Bibles in and we open them to Acts chapter 19. And our study for the past few weeks has been the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. This is the fourth message in the series, The Spirit of Christ. And I continue to use that that title to emphasize the centrality of Jesus Christ. The Bible focuses our attention on Him. And that's true in both Testaments. We've seen in our previous studies how that Christ is the central figure in tabernacle worship. We see that he is central in the prophecies of the Old Testament concerning its incarnation. He is central in the Old Testament sacrifices. And he is central to the prophecies that he will come as a reigning king in a physical kingdom upon this earth. The New Testament hones in on the incarnational aspect of his ministry. That is that God became man... God came in the form of man, in man's body, to show people how he would redeem them from their sins. He came to teach his disciples, to prepare them to evangelize and to work for him, and to make new disciples who would do the same, and thus continue his church in the world until he returns for us. Now, the New Testament records the death of Jesus for the sins of his people, Importantly, it speaks of the resurrection that Paul describes as essential to our justification. The New Testament tells us how to live for Christ and to expect his return to this earth. And then it goes on to tell us about the end times and how that Christ will reclaim the world from the curse of sin. And then finally, to bring all believers into his presence in the glories of heaven. The Bible focuses on Christ. And as we learn in this series, the Holy Spirit is in the world to make sure that our focus remains on Christ. Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will not speak of himself, but he will glorify me. So when we speak of the Spirit of Christ, the the Holy Spirit is not diminished in any way. The Godhead is not a competition. The Spirit is One with the Father and the Son. Our God is a trinity. The Spirit has a different ministry than the Father and the Son. And that's what we're here for in this series to explain what his ministry is, to learn more about that. Now today, we go back to Acts 19, which has been the launching pad for our study. This is Paul's inquiry when he interviewed 12 men in the city of Ephesus. Now I've read this passage in previous three sermons. And I'm not going to read that entire passage again. I trust that you are familiar with it from the previous readings. If you're not, you can catch up very quickly by reading that uh, on your own time just a little bit later. But I want to refer mainly to the question that was asked by Paul in verse number 2 and the answer that he received from these believers in Ephesus. Paul asked them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. Now it's important that we repeat that Paul did not ask them, Do you know or did you know that the Holy Spirit exists? For surely, being disciples, they had heard of the Holy Spirit, but their answer reflects their minuscule understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's not only a problem for them, it's also a problem for people in our day who claim the Christian faith. Now, unfortunately, our King James Version leaves us wondering what their reply meant. And I don't intend this as a criticism of the King James, for I find that the English Standard Version that claims to be clearer than the King James also leaves the wrong impression. In fact, the worst impression The ESV states the reply to the question this way. No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. I think that translation is worse because it seems to pointedly emphasize that they had not heard of the Holy Spirit in any way. We have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. The NASB, New American Standard Bible, translates similarly. 
Now, I don't want you to shoot me for saying this, but I think the best translation of the verse is the American Standard Version. It clarifies the answer by saying, Nay, we did not so much as hear whether the Holy Spirit was given. And I think that best expresses the sense of their predicament. Now, the American Standard is not opposed to what the King James says. It just further clarifies and gives the correct meaning or sense of their answer. So their answer is that they had not heard of a ministry of the Holy Spirit in New Testament believers. They had not heard that the Holy Spirit was given in the special way that Christ promised his disciples when he said that the Spirit would come. Now, what they did know is that the Spirit is in the world because he's always been in the world. But since the coming of Christ, the Spirit is active in the lives of believers in a very special and conscious way. This is still, though, a problem in modern Christianity. Many people don't understand the Holy Spirit. They don't understand how he works. They don't understand how he fits into the Godhead. They don't understand why they need him and what he's able to do for them. And so their misunderstandings lead them in the wrong direction and leave them without access to the full benefits of his ministry. So our attempt here is to take the scriptures and to show us the correct meaning of the Holy Spirit, well, who he is, what he does, and correct these false beliefs and misinformation. Now, just to catch you up a little bit on what we've covered thus far, I want to give you the previous points of our outline. We won't spend long here. If you've missed any of the messages, I suggest that you get a copy and you'll have a better understanding of these points. The first topic that we discussed is that the Holy Spirit is a person. The Spirit is not an influence. He is not an inanimate force. He is not impersonal. He is personal. He has all the characteristics that would define him as a person. Secondly, we discussed that the Holy Spirit is deity. He is a person, and he is a person in the Godhead. Our God exists as a trinity. There are three persons in the trinity that are equal in every way. They are one in essence but three in persons. This is one of the most difficult doctrines in Scripture. I confess, I don't understand it really well. I don't think there is anybody who does, but the Bible teaches it, so that means that we must believe it. And it shows us that there is a distinction in the persons of the Godhead, but there is no distinction in the essence of the Godhead. All the persons of the Trinity possess the attributes of deity. They are distinct in person with different operations. They are not three gods in one. They are one God in three persons. So first we must recognize the Spirit is a person and that he is God. And then we broaden our discussion to, since he is God, then what does he do? What, what are the peculiarities of his ministry? And so that takes us into the third part of our outline that we discussed last week. Number three is the Holy Spirit is God's agent. We can say it this way. When God works in the world, he works through the Holy Spirit. Before Jesus went to the cross, he promised that he would send his spirit, the Holy Spirit, to work in believers as a part of his agency of doing God's work in the world. Now, last week I gave you three areas of the Holy Spirit's work. He is the agent in the ministry of creation. God worked through the Spirit to form the earth and to give life. It is through the Spirit that life is given and that the Spirit maintains life upon the earth. Secondly, he is the agent in the ministry of Christ. It was the Holy Spirit by whom Jesus was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. It was the Holy Spirit that taught him and as he grew and gave him his knowledge of the scriptures. It was the Holy Spirit that prepared him for his ministry. And it was the Holy Spirit that continued to guide him and strengthen him through those hard days on the way to the cross. Now perhaps you may remember several weeks ago I, I spoke about the promises that were made to Christ in the Pactum Salutis, that is, in the eternal covenant in the Godhead, by which the Son would become the Redeemer of man. And one of the promises that God the Father made is that he would receive the Spirit without measure. 
John wrote in his gospel account in John 3.34, For he whom God has sent speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. Hebrews quotes the Old Testament psalmist, Hebrews 1.9, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Again, Old Testament scripture that talks about Jesus Christ. And oil in that verse is a reference to the anointing oil that was poured on Aaron. That is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. And then very importantly, it was by the Holy Spirit that Jesus was raised from the dead. Paul says this in Romans chapter 8. He claimed the work of the Holy Spirit in the resurrection. And he said, because the Holy Spirit is in you, you as a believer will also be raised from the dead. And then thirdly, we learned of his ministry in the canon. This means the Holy Spirit was the agent in the inspiration of the Holy Scriptures. The canon is the measuring rod of truth. It is the complete Word of God. The men that wrote Scripture were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write God's words. And he is the author and the protector of those words. None of them will pass away. He preserves the Word today so that when we take and hold up this Bible in our hands, we can be sure that we have the inspired, inerrant Word of God. And this is all the Word of God. And this is all that there is. This is all that God has spoken to us. So we have that confidence because the Holy Spirit is the one who preserves the Word. The Holy Spirit is also the one who opens our hearts and illuminates our minds to the understanding of the Word. Without the Holy Spirit to do this, the Bible would just be black words on white paper. We would have no understanding. And this is the reason that the majority of the world sees little to no value in the Bible. Oh, sure, they'll say, yeah, that's a great moral compass for us, and there's some good things that we can learn there, but it doesn't have any supernatural power to do anything for us. And they are true in a measure. What they say is true in a measure. The Bible doesn't have any supernatural power for us until it is illuminated by the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And then it becomes the power of God unto salvation. It's the power of God by which we live, and it's the power of God by which we will be taken to heaven. It only works that way when the Holy Spirit uses it to open up our eyes of understanding. Now, uh, of course, we say it doesn't have any supernatural power, as I say, until the Holy Spirit uses it. But when he opens the eyes of understanding, then the Word becomes the means by which we are born again. The Word tells us about Jesus and what he did for us. And the Holy Spirit uses that to draw the lost sinner to Christ. Well, this is where we do want to continue today. The Holy Spirit is the ministry uh, agent in the ministry of creation. He's the agent in the ministry of Christ. He's the agent in the ministry of the canon. And fourthly, he is the agent in the ministry of the Christian. Now tell me if I'm going too fast. Am I speaking too fast for you? All right, let's, let's, let's go on then. I'll, I'll try to keep up the pace and get you out of here as early as I can. The ministry of the Christian. And this is the blessed truth that Christ is in you. And he is in you by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Colossians says, Christ in you is the hope of glory. Now, I'd like you to turn to Romans chapter 8. We'll look here for just a moment. These are verses that I read last week, but I'd like to return to these as a means of connecting in your understanding the association of the Holy Spirit with Christ. And I want to show you that when the Bible says that Christ is in you, it means that the Holy Spirit is in you. Romans chapter 8 and verse number 9. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. These verses have been useful to us. We've used them to show the Trinity of God. 
We've used them to show the equality of the Godhead and also the interchangeability of these terms. Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ, and Holy Spirit. Christ in you is the hope of glory. The Holy Spirit in you sustains your hope. He sustains your hope that, that you belong to Christ, that he owns you, that whether in life or death, you are his. The Holy Spirit in you keeps that hope alive in you so that you want to pursue God. You want to go after the things of God, things that you never wanted to do before. The Holy Spirit is Christ in you. Now, I said last week that the best place for us to start is at the beginning. Now, we started at the beginning talking about creation. That's the very first point that we talked about with the Holy Spirit. Now, we need to look at the very beginning of how the Holy Spirit makes us Christians. How do we become Christians in the first place? And I'd like to give you a list of the Holy Spirit's work in the Christian. We'll progress through this over the next few weeks. Uh, We start then at the beginning. And this is the way that a person comes to faith in Christ. So our first word to consider is the word regeneration. This is where it starts, regeneration. Now my comments here only serve as an appendage to the excellent sermon that, on regeneration that Matthew Kaczynski preached back in the month of April. I, I recommend you find that online and listen to it again. But since regeneration is not the primary focus today, and we don't spend all of our time on it, I'm not going to give you all the details that he gave in the exposition of this subject. But I will say that your understanding of regeneration will color the rest of your beliefs in what you believe about the effectual working of the Holy Spirit in, according with God's, in accordance with God's eternal plans. Understanding the peculiar work of the Spirit in regeneration should end all arguments about whether God always, always accomplishes his eternal purposes. Now, the Holy Spirit is the person of the Godhead that regenerates the believer. He's the one who takes the spiritually dead sinner and gives him life. Regeneration, we often equate or use a, another term for it, that is being born again. Only three times in the scriptures do we see these words, born again. Two of those times are in John chapter 3. So obviously, the places in scripture where this is found are highly important texts. Uh, this is chapter, chapter 3 includes the beloved passage uh, between Jesus and Nicodemus in which we find John 3.16. I'd like you to turn there, if you would, to John chapter 3 as we look at this for the next few minutes. Um, most of you can quote John 3.16 that comes in the middle of this text. Unfortunately, the familiarity with John 3.16 does not necessarily mean that people understand it very well or what is actually taking place in this chapter. Now, the first part of the chapter, going down through verse 21, is a private conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. We might even say it is a secret conversation because Nicodemus was a a part of the Sanhedrin, the highest Jewish court. So he came to Jesus at night, and that was to protect his reputation among his fellows. He feared their reprisals, that he would be seen with Jesus. So in this conversation, Jesus introduced to him a concept that was foreign to his understanding of Scripture and of spirituality. And you can tell by the way that that he responded to Jesus that he was given information that he never knew. But he should have known it. He should have known what this was about because the Old Testament teaches it. But unfortunately, the Jews had so grossly perverted salvation by grace into a work salvation scheme that the truth of the Old Testament was mostly unknown to them. Now, to substantiate this, if you look just quickly at verses 9 and 10, Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? A teacher in Israel should have known this. This is foundational to understanding God and his grace. But Nicodemus didn't know, and he didn't understand what Jesus was doing. 
Now, he did acknowledge that Jesus worked miracles that no one could do except the power of God was in him. But he didn't understand Jesus and what he was doing altogether in his ministry. And, and uh, he was unsure of this message that he brought from God. Now then, we look at verse number 3. John, or Jesus, answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is the first time that we see born again in Scripture. So we know Nicodemus would not have found this phrase in his Old Testament studies. But that is not to say that people in the Old Testament times were not born again. When they believed, they were born again. It just means that they would need to ask some of the same questions that those disciples over in Acts 19 had to ask. They would have to ask maybe a question about the Holy Spirit, just as they did. Because in the Old Testament, they didn't understand all of this very well. But the idea of regeneration, the idea of being born again by the Spirit, that is found in the Old Testament Scriptures. A concept that's taught by the prophets, but they never interpreted those passages correctly. So Nicodemus replies to his statement in verse number 4. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Well, there's proof that being born again was foreign to his thinking. He thought that Jesus was talking about a miracle by which a grown man could re-enter his mother's womb and be delivered, be delivered in childbirth a second time. Well, he might have thought that Jesus was able to do that because he did say, you know, you're doing miracles that nobody but God can do. He acknowledged that in verse number 2. And then when Jesus explained to him, he showed him that he was not talking about a natural birth. He's speaking of a spiritual one in which the Holy Spirit is the agent. In verse 5, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. Second time it's used in Scripture. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. These verses contain so much theology that we could get lost wandering around the halls in one of the greatest universities of truth that is found in all of the scriptures. The new birth is accomplished by the agency of the Holy Spirit, and it is done in a way that is above our comprehension. And this is the reason that Jesus referenced the wind blowing where it wants. You don't know where it starts. You don't know where it goes. And so is the secret work of the Holy Spirit that happens to a person prior to coming to faith in Christ. The Holy Spirit gives spiritual life. He raises a spiritually dead person, a spiritually dead man from the tomb of spiritual death and gives him life, enabling him to believe the gospel and be saved. Now, I could take some time today to develop these thoughts and we could go on and on and we can talk about the ordo salutis, which means the order of salvation. Does repentance and faith produce the new birth or does the new birth produce repentance and faith? And that is a very important question and the answer forms the basis on which we must cooperate to receive life and salvation or whether God is completely sovereign. This is the difference between what we call a monergistic new birth and a synergistic new birth. And I think you all know where I stand on this. Regeneration is monergistic, means that it is affected by the Holy Spirit alone in his work upon the soul. Now, we substantiate that by many texts, uh, among them, which is John 3.8. The Holy Spirit is compared to the wind as he works. We are unaware of his presence until he works to overcome spiritual death and to illuminate our understanding. It's then we repent and believe. We find the same concept in Ephesians chapter 2, where the Bible says that we are dead in trespasses and sin. So if we are spiritually dead, how do we repent and believe? 
Dead men can't do anything. So we must be brought to life in order to believe. And who is that one who gives life? Well, that person is the Holy Spirit of God. We didn't get life like this in our natural birth. And certainly we can't do it in the spiritual new birth. And this is the reason that Jesus illustrates with the natural birth. The Holy Spirit gives life. Only God can give life. And so we can eliminate synergism in the new birth. You didn't give life to yourself. Someone else did that for you, your parents. And the same is true in our spiritual birth. Now, let me add for your understanding that synergism is reflected in the saying that you often hear, God must do his part and we must do our part. And I would say that works really well, but only after God secures a voluntary response to the gospel. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. The new birth is monergistic, but at this point we have not yet been brought to salvation. The new birth always produces the second part, which is repentance and faith. Those are synergistic, which means that we must cooperate with God at this point in repenting from our sins and trusting Christ as our Savior. So we distinguish this by saying that the new birth is monergistic, but conversion is synergistic. In conversion, God secures cooperation. So although the Holy Spirit gives both repentance and faith, he doesn't repent for us. He doesn't believe for us. And the point that I make here is that we can't get to these actions of repentance and faith until the Holy Spirit regenerates. Until the Holy Spirit quickens, until he brings a spiritually dead sinner with no positive spiritual activity to do anything to become one who is spiritually alive, only then is that sinner capable of expressing repentance and faith. So it's the Holy Spirit who's God's agent in the new birth. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So this means your parents could not give you more than physical life. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives you eternal life. Now, just in passing, I I just can't get over this scripture without bringing this point to bear. I'd like you to look at verse number 5 again. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, stay with me here as I give you another point of theology. This verse is not a little controversial. What does Jesus mean by being born of water? Some put baptism here, and they make baptism an essential part of salvation. But we know that can't be right because it raises two problems, sacramental salvation and sacerdotal salvation. This means, the first means, sacramental, would be the necessity of performing a sacrament in order to be saved. The second, sacerdotal, is to have the presence of someone who could baptize you. So you're dependent on them to help you get saved. You can't baptize yourself. And so a sacerdotal salvation means you've got to have somebody else do that for you. So that first means observing the sacrament. Second, having that person to baptize. Well, others say, well, no, that's not right. This is not baptism. Water means the amniotic fluid in the natural birth. When a woman is ready to give birth, we say... Her water broke. And you see that on television sometimes, and everybody goes into a frenzy. The water broke. It's time to go. It's time to go. She's ready to give birth. So they say the first part of this means the physical birth. The second means the spiritual birth. To me, that's the worst explanation. Because it's far too obvious to say that a person must be born physically before he can be born spiritually. Nicodemus may have had a little bit of trouble understanding, but I don't think he was that weak. And then there are others who say that the water refers to the Word of God. Arthur Pink held this opinion in his exposition of the Gospel of John. He makes a very good case, basing it on 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, the third time where we see born again in the Scriptures. 1 Peter 23 says, Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. So he says that water refers to the word of God. I think that's a very good explanation. I could accept that as most, or many, I should say, good Bible students do. However, I prefer another viewpoint. 
This is the one given by John Gill and that of John Calvin, that water and spirit are in apposition to each other, which means that spirit explains water. They mean the same. So we have a double emphasis on the spirit, and the water symbolizes inward purification by the Holy Spirit. Titus 3.5 says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Now there you can see that washing brings to our mind water and purification, and renewing is the new birth. But regardless of which of those two better interpretations that you take, the important salient point is that the new birth is the work of the Holy Spirit. Now we also need to bring into the discussion how the Holy Spirit works regeneration. Does he zap us and then we're born again and saved? Well, we would say no to that. There's an operation here. The Holy Spirit works to bring us to conviction that we are sinners in need of the grace of God. There's none of us that's saved in ignorance, as if the Holy Spirit did something to us, and then we sit here and we say, what happened? Something just happened. I, I don't know how that happened. What is this? No, we come to the realization of sin. The Holy Spirit makes us see what we couldn't see before, that we're sinners and we're doomed to hell without any way to help ourselves. And so it causes us to give up, up any type of self-help salvation. He causes us to give up hope in any religious activity that we might do, thinking this is the way by which I'm saved. There is some effort that I need to put into it. And Paul explained how that God uses the law of God to do this. The Holy Spirit works in us and puts us up against the measuring rod of the law, which demands, demands absolute perfection. And then we understand we can't make that grade. We can't live to that. We can't live to the standard that God requires. And so it's then that we're driven to Calvary. We're driven to the foot of the cross where someone did this for us. And there we receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We receive the forgiveness of the sin, of our sins. Now it may be true that the Spirit may woo us for a long time, but the accomplishment of the purpose itself takes place in a flash, in an instant, when the Holy Spirit takes us and makes us realize that sinful condition and then gives us the faith that we need to receive Christ as Savior. Jesus said in John 16, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Now note this scripture because the principal teaching is that the world rejected Christ. It still does. When he came, when Christ came, they rejected him. And so the Holy Spirit was sent to convict the world of this terrible sin and to show how unrighteous Christ's rejectors are. They will be judged for the sin of rejection. Note the point. But also note that for us as individuals, the Holy Spirit drives us to the realization of sin. It drives this down into our souls and brings us to repentance and faith. And this is the reason that you will never see a born-again person who is not also a repentant, believing person. And this, in fact, is the objection that is sometimes leveled at the doctrine. That by what we say in this order of salvation, that it's possible to have born-again people who have never trusted Christ. And I'll tell you, that cannot happen. In fact, we don't even refer to a time difference between regeneration, repentance, and faith. There's a logical order, we say, but there's not a chronological one. This happens immediately. The Holy Spirit works immediately to accomplish all of this in us. Now, then we begin our Christian lives by regeneration. We become Christians at first because of the Holy Spirit. And then when you are born of the Spirit, you can be sure that you have a parent that never forsakes his children. The Holy Spirit makes you a Christian, and then he becomes active in your life. He comes to indwell you. How does he do this? Well, that's the next work of the Holy Spirit in the Christian. 
Number two is sanctification. Now here's the part where I'm breaking things down a little bit for you. It may be too simple for you. This week and in all my other sermons, I speak in theological terms. Some churches believe that it's best to remove the theological terms because there are so many people that don't know the vocabulary of the Bible. When I speak like this and I, I throw people off when I use these terms, and I think that's true, I realize that it's true at times, but it doesn't mean that we should abandon theological terms. Our church is, I would say, not geared to the usual Sunday morning Christians. I try to simplify doctrines, but I'll not abandon the doctrines or the words that describe them. Not because they're difficult. There's always the opportunity to ask questions. Our Sunday afternoon class is a good time for further discussion. So I want you to come to church here to learn more than what most churches will teach you. I'm not here to dumb down the Word of God. It's the Holy Spirit's work to help you to grow in your understanding of the Word. And if people are content with nothing but easy sermons all the time, and they think that's all the Bible education I need, I can tell you they're destined to be very weak Christians. A few weeks ago, someone left the service and said, and it wasn't a bad comment, it was just the person said, there's a lot I need to learn. And that is fine. There is no criticism of any person in here who needs to learn more. That's exactly what I'm here for. And this is why I do this. We teach the Word of God so that you can grow in your understanding of it. Now, let's talk about the hows and the whys of sanctification. What does the word mean? Most of you know. We use the term, and it's part of the biblical vocabulary. But what does that actually mean? And I find that there are Christians in churches that have heard the word over and over again, but you say, could you define that word for me? And they really don't know what it actually means. What does it mean? Well, it, the basic meaning of it is to take something and separate it apart. And to take that thing that is set apart and to rededicate it for holy purposes. Now, you as a believer in Jesus Christ, at one time, you were over here. You were with the rest of the world. You, you were just like them. You were dead in your sins. You were just like them. You lived just like them. You enjoyed the pleasures of sin just like them. But then you were born again. And God took you from over here and he put you on this side. He took you from that place over there and separated you from that kind of a lifestyle. And he put you apart from the other crowd. When you're born again, the Holy Spirit gives you a new nature, and that nature is not in them, but it is in you. That's what makes you different. He has separated you from them. So he sets you apart to fulfill the ultimate purpose for your life, and I shouldn't have to repeat this to anyone here. The ultimate purpose of your life is to glorify God. And this is why the Spirit sanctifies you in your salvation. So now you become a person who can glorify God. Now you have a life that can live for God, and you no longer live for yourself. When the Holy Spirit sets you apart, you receive a new designation. Sanctification is the same root word for saint and holy. I must understand that not all saints are dead people. There are living saints. In fact, we ought not to put the world's definition on this word saint. It's a Bible description, and it stands for any person that is born again. So if you're regenerated, if you are a born-again believer, you are a saint. You will always be a saint. And listen, I don't want to throw you off here, but you are as sanctified as you will ever be. You are as holy as you will ever be because holiness is not your operation, that is God's operation. Now, pay attention to terms. This is what we call positional sanctification. This is a one-time act that does not relate to any stage of Christian growth. When you are saved, you are sanctified and set apart to God. This is the way that Paul uses the term in 2 Thessalonians 2.13 that we read earlier in our scripture reading. Peter also says uh, the same in 1 Peter 1 verse 2. So the Thessalonian passage, Paul says, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation, listen, through sanctification of the Spirit 
and belief of the truth. Peter says, 1 Peter 1, 2, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. Now, interestingly, one preacher that I uh, read after was trying to get around the doctrine of election in these verses uh, that's taught here, and he said, no, this, this is speaking of the Spirit is sanctified. This does not mean that the Spirit is sanctified. It means the believer is sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And it means that we are designated for sanctification when we were chosen by God. We were to be set apart to God. The backup verse is Romans 8.29. For whom he did for know, then he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Being conformed to the image of Christ is our sanctification. So that's where we start out. You believe? Positionally, you are sanctified. Every person justified by faith is also sanctified by the Holy Spirit. That person is set apart and made holy. Justification and sanctification are different doctrines, but one does not exist without the other. Well, you say, that all sounds very good, Pastor Smith, but I don't always feel holy. And I would say to you, you don't always act like you're holy. This is the reason we preach sermons on Christian living. Whether you feel it or not, you are holy as far as your position in God's kingdom. That is, of course, if you are a believer. But there is another type of sanctification that needs a lot of work. In fact, you'll spend your whole life working on this until you're glorified and in the presence of God. And this is what we call progressive sanctification. This is the part that takes place every day as you grow in the grace of God. Positionally, all believers are the same in Christ. But progressively, not all have reached the same place of growth. The Bible is filled with examples. We'll just look at two so you can get the point. In the first one, you'll see the word holy. That's part of the meaning of sanctification. Now, in 1 Peter, starting with the 13th verse... 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance. Now we look at that. Obedience, obedient children, children that have given up the way that we used to live. We were ignorant. That is when we were ignorant of God's way of life. Then verse 15 comes along. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, in all your way of life. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. Now, again, you say, well, wait just a minute. God commands us to be holy, but we're already holy. You just said everybody that is saved is holy in God's eyes. Well, again, that's positionally. But here we see sanctification from that other side. This is progressive, the progressive side. God commands us to be holy. He says, live a holy life. Take care to be like me. Have God-like qualities. And, of course, the Bible explains what those are. Now, if you'll turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, here's the idea of separation coming out of the world to be different. This is not something that we just comfortably comfortably sit back and we say, oh, I'm so holy, I'm just so holy, there's nothing that needs to be done. Uh, I'm just fine the way that I am. No, here, here we find this takes some conscious effort, some things that we've got to do to grow in the grace of God. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord, that is agreement, hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Verse number 17. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And will be a father unto you. And ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Now, if you want to be be very frank about this passage, here's the straight truth. 
You are under a lot of pressure when you own the Lord's name. If you are a saint, you are put into the pressure cooker of Christian living. It will be difficult. If you are really living for Christ, it will be difficult. But you're under that obligation because Christ saved you and given, has given you eternal life. You are under this obligation that you take willingly to serve him as your Lord and Master. Before you ever say a word, you must think, is this what God would have me to say? Are these words an expression of God's presence in my life? Now, some time ago, this is really a long time ago, I heard that a former church member was speaking terribly about us on Facebook, and this person was angry because we didn't let her into the leadership of the church. And she pretty much answered her own question why we wouldn't. Uh, she would speak against the, we wouldn't have leaders that speak against the, the, the church and don't bring glory to God. Now, you're not going to get to leadership or any place in the church by attacking the Lord's church. The Bible says that Christ loved the church and he gave himself for it. You can't attack his bride, his beloved, and claim the leadership of the Holy Spirit. But aside from that, we do have people, and I hope none of you, but I'll say this just in case, uh, there are some who have no problem just stepping out at night, visiting the dens of iniquity, places where the booze flows, where men are lusting and predators are prowling, and where the people that you associate with are hateful to God and his ways. You just listen to their talk for a little while, and you see how much they hate God. Now you stop for a moment if you do this, and you think, is this holiness? Is this where God wants me to be? Am I doing what God wants me to do? Am I in in an environment where I can glorify Christ with my life? Those are questions that you must ask as a sanctified Christian. And you will not be sanctified holy until you answer those questions correctly. This is where God wants me. This is where I should be. I can glorify God where I am. You bear an awesome responsibility when you claim Christ. Did you know that? Just slide up the page into chapter 5 for a minute at the end of the chapter. We read it very carefully, 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21. Now then, what? We are ambassadors. We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God to beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead. Be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Why? That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And one last thought, I'm out of time. We need to think about our personal presentation. How do you look? Would someone mistake you for a member of the devil's crowd? Do, uh, you know something that the world teaches our children? It teaches them to do their own thing. It says, you know, you're, you're you. You're, you're you. You're a unique you. You just throw off structure, get rid of anything that restricts your personal freedom. You think like you want to think, you do what you want to do. So it teaches them to be individualistic and to stand out in the crowd. Unfortunately, when they stand out in the crowd, it turns out they're just like the rest of the crowd. Trying to be different, they end up looking like the crowd. But anyway, they they teach them this, and by this, it's the same thing as teaching them a standard. And the standard is the world's standard. They want you to live by, live by the world's standards. Well, let me tell you about something about Christianity. We're not supposed to draw attention to ourselves. We're not here to draw attention to us. We're not to be individualistic. And you know why? Because individualism is a function of pride. Oh, you just heard me say that. It's a function of pride. And that's why you have the flags, and that's why you have the marches, and that's why you have all that stuff going on. It's draw attention to me. Let me do my own thing. Forget God and His Word. Forget the teaching of God's Word. I'm too prideful for that. Look at me at who I am. I don't live for self. I hope you don't. Hope you don't. I live for Christ. Because that's what the Bible teaches. So if I'm going to dress anyway, if I'm going to groom myself in any way, it will be that I might say, Can you see Christ in me? Can you see the Savior? Can you see the image of Christ? Now think about these things. This is the Holy Spirit's work in sanctification. 
Paul said you need to walk with Christ because it is the will of God, even your sanctification. Sunday morning, we're pressing up against the clock and lunchtime. And I've learned in all the years that I've done this that the Holy Spirit cannot compete with growling stomachs. And if you believe what I just said, you haven't listened to a word that I've said. Uh, but it is sanctification. It's a great Bible doctrine. We need to understand it. We need to know how does the Holy Spirit sanctify us in our daily walk with God. We will not walk with God without Him. So we leave it there for today. There's more to discuss in the agency of the Holy Spirit, of the Holy Spirit in the lives of Christians. I hope that you learned something today. And if you didn't learn anything, if it's all the same old thing to you, then hopefully it strengthened you in your position so you can just explain that to someone else who needs to know. There's so many blessed truths about the Holy Spirit. He is the Spirit of Christ. And if you are born again, He is in you. Blessed be God for the regenerating, sanctifying Spirit of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning thanking you that Jesus Christ is in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray for everyone here, for their understanding of the words that have been spoken today. Some of us may have differences of doctrine. We may find some things to be controversial. But we, we know this, and I think that we're all in agreement, that we need the Holy Spirit every day to work in our lives. It is by the Holy Spirit that we were born again. It is by the Holy Spirit that we will live. It is by the Holy Spirit that our bodies will be raised from the grave. That's the power of the resurrection that raised up Christ. That is our hope. So I pray, Lord, that you'd work in the lives of everyone here today, that we would be powerful witnesses for you in our word, in our speech, but also in everyday living, so that people will say there is a different person. They're different from the rest of the world. They are separated somehow, and I'd like to know how. We have the answers to these questions through your word. Thank you, Father, for being with us today. Bless our fellowship that we have in just a few minutes. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Brian Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.